This is the Annex, a sociology podcast. I'm Joseph Cohen from the City University of New York, Queens College. I'm Leslie Hankson from Georgetown University. And I'm Gabriel Rossman from UCLA. Today, upper middle class American parenting. Our guest is Christina Sharp from the Communications Department at the University of Washington. Our discussion was recorded on Wednesday, May 7th, 2019. So sociology really got a a great showing and a pretty good piece in the New York Times upshot, uh, The Relentlessness of Modern Parenting. Did you guys uh, read that? Mm -hmm. Nope. I was too busy with upper middle class parenting. (laughs) (laughs) No, well, that's what it's about. First of all, I'll say off the top, it's a piece that showcased some great sociologists of the family. Uh, A friend of the show, Philip Cohen, was mentioned. Uh, Jessica Calarco, Caitlin Collins, Liana Sayer. And basically what it's talking about is the development of this really intense parenting style, like heavy on time commitment, heavy on involvement, and uh, some crazy facts emerge. Like, for example, parents spend on average about five hours a week reading to kids, doing crafts with them, attending recitals and games. And this is up from about an hour and 45 minutes in 1975. Uh, Mothers who work, spend just about as much time tending to their children as stay-at-home moms did in the 1970s. And of course, fathers are also investing far more time than they did historically as well. So there's a a style of parenting. It's very resource-heavy. It costs a lot in time. It costs a lot in emotional energy. It costs a lot in money. And uh, uh, that's what parents are doing. And it's starting to trickle down. Wow, it's almost as if you'd expect this to have some impact on fertility. <laughs> uh, well, well, does it? Or I wonder. Or, or is it the other way around? Yeah, that's what I wonder. Go on, Gabe. Well, yeah, right. I mean, so this is what biologists would call R versus K selection of, you know, basically, do you have a ton of acorns or do you have one whale calf? Mm-hmm. And, you know, your acorn, uh, your oak tree that makes, you know, 10,000 acorns or your... Uh, sea urchin that shoots out, you know, 10,000 polyps, you know, they make almost no investment in each offspring and they just figure, well, one out of 10,000 will survive and the rest will, you know, uh, get lured into a van or, you know, fall off their bicycle or whatever. Mm -hmm. Uh, but big deal. There's 9,999 where that came from. Um, whereas like, you know, a whale will birth one calf every three years and then, you know, the whale calf will follow it around and, until its little sibling is born and drink milk and, you know, all that sort of thing. And we basically have, you know, upper middle class parenting is the reductio ad absurdum where we have so much investment in parenting that um, we actually drive it below replacement fertility. You, do you think it's that though? Or do you like, I mean, I would, I would understand if the time patterns were that people were alloc- like it was going rising on a per child basis, but the total time that parents were devoting to, to parenting wasn't going up. But now it seems like the total time that people are invest- investing in kids are is, is higher. Well, no, no, that makes perfect sense. It, no, it, it, it totally does. Like given what Gabriel was saying, right? I mean, like if we're focusing primarily on, on the upper middle class, right? Mm-hmm. If we look at their rates of fertility, right? Those, their fertility rates have been dropping, right? Mm-hmm. Um, they are delaying marriage. They are mm-hmm. delaying, like on average, they are delaying like when they have their first child and that reduces the number of children that they have. And so if you're going to have just one, maybe two precious offspring, mm-hmm. right? 
And we're we're also supposedly in the middle of this uber competitive, uh, you know, college entrance race. You know, mm-hmm. as my kids tell me all the time, "Oh my god, mom, it it, it was so much easier when you were little, <laughs> right? Um, yeah. Right? Um, it makes sense that they would be engaging in you know this concerted cultivation as a net Leroux coin. So it's interesting, like. Uh, on some level, maybe I get it, or maybe the idea is if you have seven kids, then like the forces of nature will make one of them able to support the rest, or some something like that. <laughs> like there could be a rational allocation of time, but I have to believe that there's there's some non rationality going on there, or like changing perceptions of like how much your parenting is worth in terms of fulfillment. Like it seems like. Uh, People are just like uh, your identity as a parent has become more salient. People don't, I get my sense is people don't neglect kids as much as they might have in the past. And that there's a qualitative change. It's not just about a strategy of maximizing, I don't know, the family's well being or your, you know, your progeny's overall level well, of mean- survival. It could be both, right? I mean, I mean, I think there's also a certain aspect, particularly thinking about the upper middle class, mm. of you know, sort of keeping up with the Joneses or respectability politics, whatever it is you want to call it, where mm. you know your neighbors, like, yeah, you know, my child is, you know, enrolled in A, B, C, and D, mm. right? And then they're, and then they look at you and say, "What is your child enrolled in?" And you're just mm. like, "Nothing. We just hang out in the front yard." Um, yeah, I mean, I think that there is an element of, you know, of, of, of this kind of adult peer pressure in these kinds of communities to, to actually at least be able to display to everyone else that you're just as invested in your child um, as they are. Christina, when you talk to the, uh, the parents of previous generations, do you get a sense that younger parents are conceiving of parenthood in fundamentally different terms from, you know, previous generations? Or is it that you're focusing on sort of relationships with problems, so it's not a good marker? Like, what's your sense based on what you, you've you observed? So I would say different from my estrangement work, I've looked at issues like postpartum mm-hmm. depression and um, women who give up their child for adoption and the ideology around intensive parenting is really crushing. And I think it's becoming um, more so that not just the intensity of which parents have to parent their children, but like the unintended consequences Mm -hmm. for people who might not be performing parenthood in that way. Interesting. um, Is, is really problematic and and we know that like um suicide among women is such a high rate for maternal death um and i and i wouldn't be surprised if some of that has to do with the pressures of being a mother um the pressures of parenthood and the expectations the increasing expectations that Mm. we see it's interesting and so it's a, there are there are some pushbacks on this though right like i've heard of free range parenting the article yeah. mentions it i have a, a neighbor who's like a free range parent and frankly she's like a role model for me <laughs> and then there's like it's it's it, it's a distinctly american way of parenting isn't it like uh, it's my understanding i remember hearing about uh, there was a book on french parenting years ago i forget what it was that 
sort of made the rounds. And there's other research that shows that other cultures, they don't have this intense bonding with their kids or sort of they're, they're more parents, like there's more distance between them. Well, what do you guys feel about this? Is it is it nuts? Does it make sense? Like, well, I mean, I like I like I was raised in in Brooklyn during the height of the crack cocaine epidemic, uh, and like my grandmother would still say, "Okay, go outside," right, mm. I, I, right, <laughs> and right I, because there's this idea that you know what there are things that you need to do right in terms of your socialization. There are things I need to do in this household that I can't get done. Right, you know, with you in here, go ahead and learn the way of the streets. Like, hopefully, not learning how to use crack cocaine, but mm. you know, but but learn how to exist and survive. And I kind of feel like you know, today in Brooklyn, where we don't have like even a fraction of the level of violence and crime that we had when I was growing up. Like, there are parents who live in perfectly safe communities who would not feel feel fine just telling their kids to go outside and play Mm -hmm. Um, and who wouldn't be fine with just letting their kids figure out what to do with their, with their free time. Uh, Do you, so wait, what, how do how do you parent then? Do you have a more of a a free range attitude or? I am. Yes, I do. I have Mm -hmm. more of a free range attitude than my kids do. Right. You know, <laughs> right. They're just like, oh my God, mom, you don't care about me. <laughs> Why haven't we been talking about college since eighth grade? Right. I mean, this is a, this is a sort of thing that is infectious. I mean, it's, I think it's a kind of, um, it's an approach to parenting that mm-hmm. I think um, sort of pulls uh, parents into that kind of, uh, into that kind of world, regardless of whether or not they would have thought um, that it was a good idea to schedule their child um, for every moment of the day because that's what's done in your community. But children see it too, right? Mm -hmm. And they they sometimes will take it as an indication of, uh, they interpret it as, well, are you really invested in me, mom? Are you really invested in me, dad? Um, so yeah, so I don't know. I think it's this self-reinforcing thing that, you know, that I think affects, um, parents and kids. It's interesting. Like there'd be a desire not to disappoint your, uh, your kids in a way like these parents might be doing this in part just so that their kids feel like they did everything possible. Yeah. Well, there, I mean, there's also things of, you know, schools are increasingly greedy institutions where, Mm -hmm. you know, there's an expectation that every other afternoon you're going to be there to watch some puppet show um, (laughs) and, you know, and answer 85 emails a day. Um, And, you know, and then aside from that, there's the notion that, um, I I mean, a lot of this is kind of uh, peer pressure, uh, particularly among women. Right. Where, you know, there's a notion of like, oh, you haven't breastfed. You know, don't you know that it could raise IQs by two IQ points, you know, or whatever. And then, you know, you find out later that that research doesn't replicate. And um, Mm -hmm. the economist Emily Oster, who I believe is at Brown now, um, you know, just published her second book. Yeah. Cool. Uh, You know, basically saying that if you go through all these studies, you find out that, first of all, a lot of them are based on uh, thoroughly mediocre science, you know, samples of 25, that sort of thing. And second of all, that even in the best case, the effect sizes are relatively small. And so if you put any value on the uh, hassle, inconvenience, discomfort, whatever for the parents, um, 
you know, it it doesn't really make sense to have this, right? And this mentality of like, well, even if it's a small effect, don't you want to do everything possible for your kid? It's like, well, not if it ruins your life and makes you not want to have more kids. And then there's also like uh, the inequality aspect of this is just mind-boggling. I remember ha- having this discussion with a friend. Like I am literally pouring, not just am I pouring literally thousands of dollars into giving my kids various forms of supplemental schooling and training and edification experiences. But like, yeah, they're getting like, uh, it's a lot of one-on-one time. Like there's, uh, it's a huge, huge investment. And and I wonder like, one, is this going to make any difference in the grand scheme of things? And if it does make a difference, well, how's a, a, a kid from a family of modest means going to compete with like these upper middle class kids who already benefit from like a segregated school system to start with? And then I add on top of that just tons and tons of extra training. Now, how much do you think that this actually improves um, upper middle class kids in some type of human capital sense versus like a cultural capital habitus sense, right? I mean, to what extent does this actually make, uh, you know, our kids uh, better mm-hmm. at things that we can meaningfully call skills? And to what mm-hmm. extent does it just kind of like give them um, somewhat arbitrary class markers? And I, and I know that that's somewhat... Yeah of a fuzzy uh, boundary, right? And that one person's mm-hmm. skill is another. So for instance, if your kid becomes a lacrosse team captain, is that meaningfully mm-hmm. considered cultural capital or is that meaningfully considered a skill? Um, right. I, I, th- I think that's a somewhat uh, arbitrary distinction, but uh, you know, I mean, we could kind of distinguish between, you know, are they, you know, really good at say math, which I think is undoubtedly mm-hmm. a skill uh, versus uh, just, you know, do they know to say like, oh, I heard that on All Things Considered, which I think mm-hmm. is, uh, you know, definitely <laughs> cultural capital. Um, so, I mean, I feel like a lot of this will come down to uh, cultural capital stuff, but it's possible some of it would be, you know, more human capital. I was going to say, I wonder too how much that interplays with like the experience of bullying. So I feel like bullying looks different today. Um, where sometimes the bullying happens around more of this cultural capital. Mm-hmm. Oh, you didn't have the same opportunities. You don't wear the same brand clothes mm-hmm. I have and how that impacts actual learning and the experience at school. Yeah, no, I think that, I, I think that that's a totally, that's a totally valid point. I mean, uh, again, not to keep going back to like ancient history when I was a kid, but you know, even like even back in the day in the hood, right? I mean, if you didn't wear the right the right sneakers, right, or if you didn't have the right gear, I mean, you would be bullied for that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I kind of feel like that's so, uh, that's something that I'm seeing now that I've moved on up and I'm, you know, I'm in this upper middle class uh, milieu raising, raising children. Um, There's bullying, uh, not just uh, among the kids Mm -hmm. uh, in terms of what they have and don't have, but also amongst parents, particularly between mothers. Well, Mm -hmm. I wanted to actually, like, I wanted to jump in and respond to Gabe's question. yeah, so Gabriel was like, you know, is this human capital? Is this cultural capital? And one of the things, I, I like, I'm not entirely certain which of these it is more. I mean, I, there's definitely a lot of cultural capital being transmitted here, right? Mm-hmm. And 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 that's not something to be discounted. But one of the things I also wanted to bring up is, you know, at least um, 
you know, at least in the high schools in the, the both public and private in Montgomery County, Maryland, uh, where I live, I live in Bethesda, we have seen this significant uptick in uh, attempted suicide and also um, uh, successful suicide uh, rates among teenagers. Um, uh, number one, number two, we've seen an uptick in, uh, in you know, in, in our young people who are experiencing different types of, uh, of mental health distress. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that that actually is tied to a lot of this intensive parenting. Uh, and I wish that we could find, it's interesting because we always have these forums where the parents are coming together and asking the schools, what can you do to help reduce the stress on our kids? Mm-hmm. And we never, when we get together in these forums, ask the schools, what can we do as parents to stop putting this pressure on our kids? So. Won't somebody raise my child right? (laughs) So so that's a good point. So if you, um, I can't remember if it was on the show or just an article I wrote for National Review, but, um, you know, uh, about a year ago, I was bitching about this um, thing called the Mastery Transcript Consortium, uh, Mm -hmm. which would basically replace Mm -hmm. uh, grades for prep schools with something that sounds kind of like a personality profile or horoscope. And, you know, I saw it as inegalitarian and that it was an attempt to basically say, well, all the kids at, you know, you know, St. Snobby's prep, uh, you know, are top of the class, Uh, you know, but, you know, if you listen to the people who are behind it, they say that the goal is to reduce stress, you know, and, you know, the kind of like super competitive nature of, um, you know, grades at uh, top prep schools. and then likewise, uh, another thing that's kind of like that is um, Jimenez at Stanford had an article in ASR a few years ago called When White's Just All Right that was talking about white flight from uh, Silicon Valley public schools. Um, although it's not the typical kind of white flight that you imagine, right? Typically, when we think of white flight, we think of uh, either there's a neighborhood transition or there's busing or something like that. And um, white parents take their Uh, their kids out of public schools because of the perception uh, that, um, you know, kids of other ethnicities are going to introduce, say, discipline problems. But Mm -hmm. in these Silicon Valley schools Mm -hmm. that Jimenez was looking at, they were actually, the white parents were pulling their kids out of the Silicon Valley public schools because there was an influx of Asians who had an even more stressful parenting style than Mm -hmm. um, upper middle class whites did. And... (laughs) They basically saw it as, you know, uh, this influx of like super type A, like even more type A than white upper middle class parents, uh, mm. you know, uh, type A Asian upper middle class parents were making the school super competitive and super stressful. And, you know, my kid's going to end up developing an eating disorder, or, uh, you know, suicide attempts or whatever, if I don't transfer them to, uh, you know, St. The Dude Academy. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. where they can kind of have a more laid back education. I, I would bet a lot of this is cultural capital transmission like this, that or just, you know, it, cultural capital transmission in the sense of being part of the, the college admissions game, because, you know, that's part of it with all these esoteric sports. Um, but you got to think there is some like when a highly educated person spends time with their child, you, you got to think that the child's going to pick up vocabulary, the child's going to pick up, 
you know, ideas, basic concepts, theories, reasoning styles, and things like that. I, I have to think that the one-on-one time with an engaged parent, if if the parent has high human capital, that there's some transmission going on. I have no basis for knowing that for sure, but that's my sense. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 I think, I think at least in mm. theory, yes, right. But I mean, we, I, I don't know how much we know qualitatively about what is actually being transmitted, mm. right, and performed during that during that time together. You know, is it just sit up straight? Mm. Um, you know, don't use the word. Mm-hmm. It's not a word, right? Blah blah blah. Or is there also is there this sort of level of yeah, let's just hang out, right? And let's have fun and in doing so learn, right? I mean, I think that that, that those are very, very different uh, uh, ways of spending time together and very different ways of transmitting both cultural and human capital. Um, and I think with the latter being preferable, the latter being the one where, you know, I think children are much more likely to retain it and actually think of it as, as something of value um, as opposed to the former where it's like, these are just rules, right? Um, that I can't wait to break. Clearly we need to bring in an expert. So if anybody has any ideas for the fall, yeah. let us know. <laughs> hey, Annette Leroux, if you were listening, we would love to have you. You've been listening to The Annex, the sociology podcast. A special thank you to Christina Sharp from the University of Washington. Christina wrote, It was the straw that broke the camel's back, exploring the distancing processes communicatively constructed in parent-child estrangement backstories in the Journal of Family Communication. We're on the web, sociocast.org slash annex, on Twitter at Sociannex, and on Facebook, the Annex Sociology Podcast. A special thank you to our senior producer for 2018-2019, Lisseth Moreno. On behalf of Leslie Hinkson and Gabriel Rossman, I'm Joe Cohen. Thanks for listening and have a great summer. Bye. Bye.